I have two readings this morning, an ancient reading and a modern one. In Genesis, in the second creation myth, the one where Adam and Eve realize they are naked, and Yahweh the Elohim then curses them with adulthood and responsibility, in that story, just before Yahweh sends them out of their childhood home and off to work in the real world, there is this divine act of forgiveness and reconciliation. Genesis 3, verse 21. Yahweh the Elohim made garments of leather and fur for Adam and Eve and clothed them. I have this vision of God the Mother Almighty clothing Adam and Eve, measuring them, cutting and stitching the leather, making alterations, adding the fur trim, and sending them off into the wilderness. And then God the Mother Almighty was alone, an empty nester in an empty Eden, watching her adult children live their lives. Our second reading is a reading from the Elder's blog. This was posted on February 7th of this year by Desmond Tutu, chair of the Elders, Anglican Bishop of South Africa, chair of the South African Commission on Truth and Reconciliation, and winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. He was in Cyprus when he posted this entry, and this entry, and the elders were assisting the people of Cyprus who were unearthing mass graves from 40 years of st- civil strife. Here's what Desmond Tutu wrote. Forgiveness does not come easily, and it may take a very long time. From my experience in South Africa and many other parts of the world where people have suffered terrible losses, I have come to understand forgiveness as a difficult and often painful journey. And yet I am continually amazed by our ability and willingness to submit to this painful process. It is as though we instinctively know that by acknowledging the humanity of all people, even those you once considered the enemy, it is possible to bring peace inside your own heart. The alternative is a harsh one. It means living with bitterness and animosity, making it very hard for any society to grow and flourish. In Cyprus, I hope that in time, families will be able to see something of their own struggle, their own tragedy in the other. I hope that they can say, yes, I have suffered, and those people on the other side, they have suffered too. Even more importantly, we must make sure that in the future, nobody else suffers as we have. Today, we are in part four of five sermons on mapping a life. And we have this beautiful language spirit map here on the chancel. And we have a street map out in the foyer, and we are using these maps as metaphors for the maps we use to orient our lives, the values we choose to align with. Herschel Gordon Lewis, a famous direct marketing copywriter, author of the book The Art of Writing Copy, he talks about five great motivators, fear, exclusivity, guilt, greed, and ego gratification. 
He writes that advertising copy must relate to one or more of these motivators in trying to sell something. We chose these five motivators as representative of the commercial culture map. The commercial culture that we cannot escape from. The ambient noise and light in which we are immersed all of our waking hours unless we intentionally unplug and disconnect and turn away from it. Today I will talk about commercial guilt and spiritual forgiveness, and in between I will tell you a personal story of forgiveness and just a little theology. This is the part about guilt. Guilt is a normal and human emotion. It is sometimes a useful emotion. But the consumer culture map engages our guilt and makes us feel guilty and then pushes us in unhealthy ways. It does not show us a path to healing or forgiveness. The spirit map, on the spirit map, guilt still exists, but we're given tools to understand it and move toward forgiveness. Have you ever seen guilt used to induce you to buy something? The neighborhood kids that call you by name from their cardboard lemonade stand, the high school car wash that begs you to help finance the band trip, the new eco-gain product that seems indistinguishable from its traditional competitor, the teenage magazine salesperson who is working their way through college, the party invitation that turns out to be a sales pitch for Amway or Mary Kay or something else. Did you buy the thing anyway? Sometimes I'd have. But I've made that purchase despite the sales technique, not because of it. Before I bought, I had to forgive the seller for that small sin of attempted manipulation. Ooh, did I just say sin? I'll get back to that later. For the kids in the lemonade stand and the car wash, if there's any manipulation, forgiveness in these cases is an easy exercise for the heart's spirit muscle. Those other examples are a little bit harder work. I do not always succeed, and even if I forgive them the guilty-smelling sales technique, they seldom make a sale. I don't really need any magazines. I can recognize these sales techniques easily because I have used them myself. But I don't think they really fool anyone or very many people anymore. They were ancient when I was young and TV was new. These days, they provide a sort of cultural script for a salesperson and a customer to play with. I once had a shoe salesman jokingly tell me that he needed me to buy his expensive floor shine dress shoes, which last five or ten years, so he could get his own kids the very expensive Air Jordans with cross trainers, which might last a season or two. So the commercial culture uses guilt as one of many ways to encourage you to buy things. While researching commercial guilt, I found that there are numerous sales techniques that use guilt. But now I feel guilty because I cannot tell you about them, because I did not buy the pamphlet or the book or the training DVD, even for the very reasonable price of $29.95. I even found a website that will teach you how to give someone a guilt trip in 10 easy steps. This is not something I recommend, but I offer it here as a negative example. Number one, plan your conversation. Try to consider how your victim will respond. Number two, meet up 
act normally and pretend nothing is wrong. Bring up the problem casually. Number three, tell your side of the story coolly and calmly. Explain the ways this person has let you down. Number four, keep eye contact and let the other person know you are serious. Number five, master the art of ping-pong eyes, shifting your focus from their left to their right eye. Number six, make the person feel the way you felt. Ask them questions like, has anyone ever done this to you? Is this something you do to all your friends? Number seven, ask questions you know they won't be able to answer like, what were you thinking? Number eight, remember your plan for this conversation and be prepared for their pitiful responses. Number nine, wait for an apology. Don't hold your breath. Number 10, and the only step in this process I approve of, be satisfied with what you get. You cannot turn back time. You cannot fix the past. Just learn from this experience and let your relationship grow because of it. Yeah, right. If you feel you just have to do this, I recommend you do steps one through nine in your head and only in your head and go straight to step 10. As I have heard Reverend Kate Tucker say, you cannot fix the past, but you can heal it. So I say be satisfied and forgive them. A personal story of guilt and forgiveness about a suicide. When I told my oldest and best friends that I was quitting my job as an aerospace manager, giving up the corner office with the credenza, and going back to grad school to become a UU minister, I heard the same thing from several of them. Dude, you'll be great at sermons, but that pastoral care stuff, you may need to work on that because telling folks, come on, snap out of your funk, that might not be enough. So I, I took their advice to heart, and I signed up for Crisis Hotline for two shifts a week on the suicide prevention line. I called it emergency pastoral care. Now, listening to other people's troubles is hard. And to prepare myself before a shift, I would go down to the Rothko Chapel at St. Thomas University in Houston, Texas, and I would meditate for 30 minutes or more. My Buddhist meditation, my Buddhist denomination is Southern Chan, or Zen, whose patriarch was Bodhidharma, who brought Buddhism to India. And he's famous for wall gazing. The Rothko Chapel is perfect for Gansfeld meditation. It is a very large octagonal room, two stories tall, with a central skylight, and on each of the eight light gray walls, it has a large black-purple Mark Rothko painting. Staring at one of these for 30 minutes, is, it's easy to get into a meditative state. Thus prepared, I would start my shift. We got many different types of calls. Some were requests for help or referrals. These were easy because we had a large database of agencies in the city and the region and the state. Some called because they were overwhelmed with serious trouble. A brother arrested and headed for prison 
a single mother just diagnosed with a dangerous cancer. Some were AA and NA type conversations. Man, I really feel the need to use. Talk me down. Some were hallucinating and wanted reassurance. Some were circular callers who are compelled to repeat this story or worry or history, which had worn a deep groove in their mind. And some were suicides looking to be talked out of it or just calling to say goodbye to someone. For the suicides, we had a model to gauge the seriousness. How often had they had thoughts of suicide? Was there a history of attempts? Did they have a plan? Did they have the means? Had they planned for their dependents? Were they willing to go to hospital? It was a good model. It was statistically valid. I was lucky in that on my shift, I never lost a caller. I felt good about that. I may not have been the very sharpest tool in the box, but I was the most recently sharpened. Working at Crisis Hotline had a good effect on me. It reduced my mountains to molehills. After a shift, I did not have any problems in life worth speaking of. Not so my friend from choir. I had been in the church choir for 10 years and sat next to and become good friends with a fellow bass. He was a large guy. He was a fun guy. He had a large, comfortable house, a wonderful wife. He sang karaoke. He loved dogs. There were no stray dogs in his neighborhood because he picked them up and took care of them. And he had some serious personal problems. Christmas of 09, he had a trigger event and a breakdown. And a suicide attempt, and he spent 10 days in hospital. When he got out, when he got out, his friends counseled him. I was one of these. Our minister, with whom he was on very good terms, counseled him. And his psychiatrist counseled him. According to the model, he was low to medium risk. The model failed. I had to forgive him that decision, that error, that harmful act, perhaps even that sin. It took a while, but it was relatively easy for me to forgive my friend. I also had to forgive myself for the sin of hubris, for thinking that I was capable for misjudging the situation. I was not alone in that error. This forgiveness was harder. It took a while. Forgiveness is tough. If I think of my friend's suicide as an unforgiven sin, that would spoil, that would block my vivid living memory of him. I would tend to flinch and turn the mind's eye away. But if I forgive my friend for his suicide, for his error, then my remembrance of him is clear, more happy, unmuddied, even more detailed. I do not turn the mind's eye away from him, but gaze directly into his shining face. And hear his deep voice.
The holidays are often a time of stress. If you feel triggered, count to ten. Go stare at a blank wall. And then try to forgive your family and friends for not living up to your expectations. Let's talk about forgiveness in general. Where to begin? What is forgiveness? What is it that we need to forgive? You decide what it is. But that is what I'm calling a sin. It is that act or omission that made you feel guilty or that injured you. As universalists, historically, we do not believe in hell, in divine punishment, or original sin. But my belief in universal salvation and the divine love for all creation of which we are a part is not enough when guilt is tearing me apart. Forgiveness is needed, and it's hard to find when the holding back is in my own mind. Guilt and forgiveness create a party of three, the sinner, the injured, and society, which may be as small as one's own family. When we are the sinner, the one who feels guilty, we can look at history and psychology for a a remedy. From the ancient church, forgiveness was a three-part ritual, an art. First was repentance, a reorientation, a turning. If you feel guilty, then rejoice, for you have already repented in your heart. Second was confession, admitting your feelings to someone, perhaps only yourself, is a milestone. In modern language, you are no longer in denial. Third was restitution, simply fixing what was broken as much as one can, even if only a token. And if we are the injured, the aggrieved, the person whose valuables were thieved, whose carefully ordered life was tossed, even the person whose loved one was lost. Forgiveness will be very hard to find in the darkness of an injured mind. But someday, after the tears, we must search deep. The alternative, not forgiving, means living with bitterness and animosity, making it very hard to have any peace of mind. There is, in good times, a flow to life, which we feel, which we know. Hatred or guilt is a stone which creates an eddy where we cycle round and round. Lift the stone with forgiveness, and the flow will return, smooth and endless. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness will release the victim from hate, but will not shorten the criminal's prison weight. And a guilty person who repented and confessed and begged pardon from the aggrieved has some peace of mind, even if the pardon is never received. Old universalist theology says God will forgive all and mend our breaks. And so should we.
if we can, for our own sakes. Forgiveness is tough. It's hard work. Let's try just a little light forgiveness as an exercise for our heart's spirit muscle. Then perhaps we will move to heavier weights. Thinking of Linus and Lucy, brother and sister in the rough and tumble of growing up, do you think they ever had to forgive some slights or even some real injuries? I know my sibling relationships need the oil of kindness from time to time. Can we forgive our ancestors for the mistakes revealed by our 2020 hindsight? Of course we can. That's easy. Mistakes are not sins. We should not punish people for honest mistakes, should we? Or for accidents, should we? Remember, forgiving is not forgetting, but moving beyond the desire for punishment or revenge to prudence and lessons learned. Let us try some heavy lifting. Instead of ten steps to a guilt trip, let's review that most ancient of motivational techniques, the Ten Commandments. We have probably almost all been injured by one of these. Speaking only for myself, I may have either broken or been injured by all of these commandments, but I want to convert them using universalist theology and Buddhist philosophy. We can convert them to the ten forgivenesses, or better, the ten graces. No longer commandments, they are gifts we can offer. They represent an alternative way to respond to failures in ourselves, in our family, and friends, and our neighbors. I call this the ten graces. Forgive those who worship money or other false idols, for they do not know what is important. Forgive those whose speech is offensive, for they are unaware, unenlightened. Forgive those who work and play too much, ignoring their family and their own need for restoration. May they know peace. Forgive those who neglect their parents, even if they're your own children. Forgive the murderers, for they are broken, ignorant of empathy, and empty of love. Forgive the cheating spouse, the unwed mother, the irresponsible father. Forgive the thief their theft, even of your life savings. Forgive the liar their slander or liable or even perjured testimony. Forgive your neighbor for being richer or smarter or just luckier than you are. Forgive yourself for being envious and jealous, but try to stop. Envy destroys your own peace of mind. Forgive, even if. Amen.